to take note of this morning. So before we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and now, God, we ask your blessing upon it. Lord God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, that, Father, you'd be glorified in this time as we respond to the truth of your holy word. We're grateful for it and thankful for it, and we recognize now that it was intended for us. May we receive it as such in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 9, all the verses that we discuss, uh, most of them will come up on the screen behind me. But you can sort of keep tabs. If you're in Luke 9, you'll be able to follow most of them. I want you to consider this morning, first of all, as we sort of backtrack a little bit about where we've been, we're following these 12 disciples as they're being taught by the master teacher. They're being taught about faith. They're being equipped for the journey ahead. We can see in the way Jesus teaches these 12 men what it is He would expect from us, require from us, and the, the things that He's given to us as His children. Because when you look at the 12 disciples, when you stop and just think for a moment about the fact that these are 12 very ordinary men, they're no different from you and I. They're just regular, average, everyday citizens. And so they find themselves going through life uh, similar to the way we were all going through life when the Lord touched us. They were fishermen and tax collectors and they were just doing their thing, waking up every day with all the struggles and trials and doubts and fears that that every normal person in this world has. And they're trying to provide for their family. They're trying to just do the best they can with what they have. And then Jesus comes along and turns their life upside down. And when He touches them, everything then begins to change. And we see as we got into Luke chapter 9 that we came to this turning point in the ministry of the disciples where Jesus sent them out to go and proclaim the gospel and heal the sick on their own without Him. And that was really this amazing moment where they maybe for the first time realized that not only is being a follower of Jesus, uh, being able to, to watch Him do amazing things around us, but actually the invitation to participate in what He is doing. And so they go out and they have uh, amazing success and come back and tell the Lord all the wonderful things that had happened. But, uh, you know, if you stop and just consider, you know, let this truth settle into your heart that these were, they're, they're just working men. And in that moment, we don't know exactly what was going on, but in that moment, maybe when, when Jesus sent them out and He said, now, now I've empowered you to cast out all demons and to heal the sick and to proclaim the gospel, and He sends them out. Now, as they were walking away, maybe before they encountered their first uh, person, what must have that been like? Knowing what he had just said, knowing who he is and what he's capable of, but being very unsure of themselves and unsure of how this was going to work out. And I wonder, you know, what that first encounter must have been like. And then when they realized that, uh, wow, look, look at what's happened. And then they go to the next person and then the next person. And everyone they encounter, they begin to share this amazing gospel with. And people would bring their sick and they would be healed. And so, you know, these men are just thinking, well, this is unbelievable. It's unbelievable that we would find ourselves able to do such amazing things. You know, it, it's like they were 
the richest person in the world and they could spend their days going out and giving away all that they had to people in need so that they would no longer struggle. I mean, think about the joy that that would bring. If, if our lives were consumed with that sort of ministry, just traveling around everywhere we went, everyone we encountered at work, everyone in the store, everyone in every parking lot, every neighborhood, every person that you and I encounter, if we saw them as if we were someone who had unlimited riches and we could go and just bestow it upon them, say, what, what are you struggling with today? And we could just bestow those riches on them and their, their, their lives would be changed. Their, their problems uh, would, would, would shrink. You know, they may not go away, but they would find that they could have peace in those problems, that they could have comfort in all situations. That really, here's the truth. The truth that in Jesus, no matter what we're facing, no matter what we go through, no matter what odds are against us, in Jesus, we can take comfort this morning that no matter what, it's going to be Okay. You see, that's really the struggle. The struggle is, is that so many times we're not sure that it's going to be okay. But we ought to be. Because the gospel says that He's defeated sin and death, that He rose from the grave, and that His power has been bestowed upon us and that we will live with Him forever. And so what really do we have to fear in this world? And so the disciples were actually living this reality out. They were living this out before our very eyes. And, and we read the pages of Scripture sometimes, and sometimes we're, we're not connecting as if, well, that's us. That's not just the story about some other people. That's who we are. And so we find the disciples really in chapter 9, as the chapter begins, on top of the world. Absolutely on top of the world. But just 40 verses later, it's a whole different story. And so last week we encountered the disciples and they were no longer on top of the world. They had found themselves in quite a predicament and they had all their uh, joy had all but gone away as they were in this big argument with the crowd and with the scribes because a man had brought his sick demon-possessed son to them and he had implored them to cast this demon out and they were trying and trying and nothing was happening. And so this argument breaks out and all this struggle breaks out. And so here's the nine disciples around this crowd and all the chaos that's going on and people are saying, well, what happened? Well, you know, you used to be able to do this and, and things used to be one way, but now they're not this way. And what's the difference? And all all this is going on and then they look off in the distance and they see Jesus coming with Peter, James and John and they're thinking, oh boy, this isn't going to go well. You know, what, what happened? You know, we're not as we once were. Things are not the way they used to be and, and we see that as Jesus approaches this father in, in Luke chapter 9 verse 40 tells Jesus, he says, I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. They were unable. They were powerless. And there's these men with their heads hung low and who just such a short time ago were on top of the world. And then Jesus makes this stinging statement. He says, you faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? 
And yes, there's connotation in there that Jesus is talking to the entire crowd, but He's really zeroing in on His disciples and their inability to follow through with all that He has not only commanded, but commissioned them to do. You know, could it be possible that there are people who have experienced the life-changing power of Jesus Christ at one time in the past? Could it be possible that maybe those people or maybe some of us who have been touched by the Lord, who at one time uh, were baptized and so filled with all the joy that comes with this new life in Christ, but today maybe find themselves faithless, maybe find themselves struggling, maybe find themselves a little embarrassed, maybe... Listen to the words of Jesus saying that, that He's having to bear with them. That maybe they're a burden to God for their failure to do what He created them to do. You know, I don't want us to think that that can't happen to us. I don't want us to be so callous or so prideful to think that we're above that happening. Because, you know, we're certainly no better than these disciples. And it still happens today, the very same way that it happened to them. You know, in, in, in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 9, the same story, Mark goes on to give us some extra information. In Mark, it says that when they had come into a house, then the disciples asked Jesus privately, you remember this, they said, well, Lord, why couldn't we cast it out? Why couldn't we do what we were supposed to do? That must have been a long walk from where they were at the foot of the mountain all the way to this home. But when they got to the home, they were waiting for a private moment to find out what is wrong. And they say, Lord, what's wrong? Why were we powerless? Why, why was our ministry futile? And Jesus says that this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. And so I want you to just think with me this morning about... This kind. What does this kind mean? That's been bugging me for three weeks. For three weeks I've been thinking, Lord, what do you mean this kind? Do you mean that this kind of demon, in other words, are there, are there some acts of ministry that you can do without prayer? Are there some demons that you can just cast right out? Or some people who are sick that can just get healed with, with, very, with no prayer at all or no faith at all? I don't think so. I think that this kind, this word in the Greek, kind, this, this genos, this word, it, it means a, like a nationality. And I think what Jesus is communicating is that this kind of ministry, that this kind of thing, that if you, if you want to see supernatural things happen, if you want to be a part of life-changing ministry, if you want to walk in the way that He has created you to walk as a believer, if you want to exist in the power and the blessing of preaching the gospel and reaching the nations, that that's this kind of ministry. And this kind of ministry cannot happen apart from prayer. And we need to seriously stop and think, what is this kind of ministry? I mean, isn't it true that we're here this morning to do this kind of ministry? But are we doing things that are a different kind of ministry? You see, the question I began to ask myself is, what are we doing that's not this kind? What are we engaged in that, that we could do with apart from prayer? Why are we here? Why has God assembled us in this place? 
Let me remind you what the Bible says in 1 John 3, 8. The Bible says the reason that the Son of God appeared was, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came. Later on in verse uh, 4 and 5 of chapter 5, John says this, but whatever is born of God overcomes the world, he says. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In other words, in Him we've overcome the world. Do we feel like that? Are we as a body embracing the fact that Jesus Christ overcame the world and has put that power in you and me? Or are we just doing things that anyone really could do? Are we engaged in things that the Salvation Army can do? Are we engaged in things that the Red Cross can do? Are we engaged in things that any charitable organization could be in, involved in? Are we engaged in those things or are we doing this kind of ministry? A kind of ministry that if we're not praying, if we're not seeking the face of God, we will simply fall flat on our face. That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Because I am absolutely convinced that there are thousands of churches filled with millions of people doing billions of activities that do not require one second of prayer. Not one second. They show up, they go through the motions, they go home and nothing changes. They feel good about the fact that they were there. They feel warm and fuzzy because they sang some songs and something was, was done and some people moved around and some things happened. But there was no life change. There was no power. There was no, there's no, their darkness was not pushed back. I'm very thankful today as we celebrate baptism among us that we would recognize that if there were not people in this church who were committed to prayer, that would not have happened this morning. It wouldn't have happened. And so the issue is not do we pray as a church, because evidently we do, because God is active and working here. The question is not are we praying. The question is are we satisfied with where we are? What would happen if all of us together began to embrace the truth that apart from prayer, nothing unbelievable is going to happen among us. And rather than ride on the backs of our brothers and sisters who are on their face before God day in and day out, what if we joined them? What if we came beside them and we began to be people of prayer and we began to pray and say, God, do something amazing here. Show us your glory, Lord. Use us. Then instead of cowering down in faith, we'd go to work and know that we've been called and empowered and equipped to share the gospel. That, that we have no, nothing to fear. That we don't need to watch the news and cower down because the economy's down or because crime's up. Listen, those are all things that are real and true and sometimes, you know, can, can cause a little fear and fright in your life. But... If you know Jesus Christ, you are invincible. Jesus said, why do you fear something that can only kill the, the body? We need to harness the power that God has put before us. And so I just want to bring your attention to two quick things. Two reasons why we must be a people of prayer. Reason number one is because of the nature of the battle. Now I'm going to tell you about some familiar verses in Ephesians chapter 6 where, where Paul begins to talk about the armor of God. In verse 12, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. 
That it's not the things we see with our physical eyes or hear with our ears, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this age and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now I want you to consider for a moment that God created everything, that Jesus Christ reigns and rules over everything. And for everything that exists, only a small percentage of that is what we can see with our eyes. There is so much going on that's beyond our capacity to see and to understand. And so Paul is saying, listen, you need to understand that there's a lot you can't see. That the warfare that we went through yesterday as we pressed all day long trying to get these testimonies together, it was warfare. It wasn't the computer. It wasn't the camera. It wasn't the software. It was powers and principalities that did not want those testimonies to be heard. But we press through. And so it's much bigger than what we see with our eyes. And we've got, to, we've got to realize that we must pray because of the nature of the war. That when when we're attacked, we ought not take that personally. You know, one of the things that grieves me is the way that we take so personally when the enemy attacks us. When That just goes to show that oftentimes we forget the truth that we're in a war. That when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you declare war upon this world. That everything in this world is going one way and you are now against the grain of everything in this world in Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's a war. And when you're at war, here's some things that we know about war. Number one is when you're in a war zone, you don't ever wonder whether or not your enemy is out to kill you. You see, no soldier is in a foxhole getting shot at and sitting there pouting and saying, what, what's wrong with it? Why are they shooting at me? It's a war. You see, we shouldn't be astonished that the that things in the world are trying to come against us. We should understand that that's the nature of war. And so if we're in a war against things we can't see, then what exactly, what earthly weapon do you plan on using as a weapon in this war? You see, if you're finding things you can't see, you're going to have to use a weapon that you can't see. You're going to have to use a weapon that exists in the realm of that which your enemy lives and breathes. And that is prayer. It's prayer. And so we need to recognize that through this study of Luke, over and over, God has been teaching us and showing us that we're in a war. And we're watching the disciples' war, but somehow I'm concerned we're not connecting ourselves to the war and receiving the truth that we're in that same war. I want you to think about, look at these verses in in Ephesians 6 and how this, this whole issue of the armor of God is bookended. Paul opens in verse 10 by saying, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Now, how exactly are you going to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might? Then he goes into the, putting on the armor of God, the belt of truth, the, be, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. He goes through all this and then he concludes with this statement in verse 18, praying always with all power and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. In other words, the armor of God is bookended with the promise of the power of God, followed by the initiation of all that He said through prayer and supplication. That if you go into war apart from prayer, you will be slaughtered. You'll be ineffective. 
You will come to church. You'll go through the motions. Nothing will change. You won't lead anyone to the Lord. You won't see God working through your family. You'll just be there. You'll just exist there. And God didn't save you to exist. He saved you to live, to live life more abundantly. And the only way to do that is to pray and to seek His face and to to harness the power that God has put before us. So we need to pray. We have to pray because of the nature of the battle. Number two, we have to pray because of the nature of the builder. I want you to think in in terms of what we're saying and, and who we are as a people gathered here this morning. That Matthew gives this account that we studied in Luke chapter 9. Matthew gives this account in in chapter 16 of his gospel. And he says this in verse 15. Then Jesus said to them, Who do you say that I am? You remember this discussion we had? And then the disciples respond and said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, so on and so forth. But then he turned and he said, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in that statement, he said, you are not just powerful. You are not just wise. You are not just a teacher, but you are the Messiah. You are the sent one who came from heaven to redeem humanity that you are set apart from any other person who will ever live. You are the special one that all of creation has waited for. That's who you are. And Jesus responds and says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, it wasn't your eyes. It wasn't your ears. How do you know this, Peter? How do you know that that I am Jesus Christ, the Messiah? Because you've been shown supernaturally. And how does that happen? You see, apart from prayer, what will you ever know that's not shown to you through flesh and blood? It's prayer. It's it's getting before the Lord and God teaching and showing us things that we can't know simply by looking or or hearing with our human fleshly capacity. And so Jesus says that I also say unto you, Peter, that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. In other words, on the truth, contrary to what some people would try to tell you, on the truth that that you say that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, on that truth I will build my church. Now here's the thing, we spend endless hours arguing over who the rock is. But let me just tell you something, the important thing in this verse is who the speaker is. Who's the one that says, I will build. He didn't say you will build. He said, I will build. I'm the one who builds the church. I'm the one who's the, who's the architect of the church. So here's the question. If we aspire to do things and have activities and be busy and involved in things that do not require prayer, is it not presumptuous upon us to say that we're the builders? Or are we only engaged in things that require fervent prayer to accomplish? Are we asking God to do things that apart from ourselves, apart from our faculties, capacities, and resources cannot happen? You see, He's the builder of the church. And there's great comfort in that. You see, because Jesus tells Peter that He's going to build the church on this foundation, the foundation of the truth of who He is. That He didn't figure this out on His own. But that supernaturally, He was shown this. And you see, that's where we want to be. We want God to be making His Word come alive in our hearts in ways that you can't get simply by listening to me preach. 
That we want God to accomplish things in our lives as we're on our face before Him. As you tuck yourself away in your closet at home and just begin to pray and intercede. God, come. Save my lost family members. Move in the lives of my co-workers. Beseeching the Heavenly Father saying, God, You have empowered me to preach the Gospel. Lord, now let me have the boldness to do that. Help me to accomplish this. But if we forsake prayer... We'll fall into the trap the psalmist wrote of in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builder builds in vain. It's useless unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In other words, everything we attempt to do apart from God's power, apart from prayer, is a waste of our time. It's a waste. That's not what the church is called to do. You see, churches can run. They can run without prayer. Listen to me. Churches function every day without prayer. Programs go forward every day without prayer. People go through routines and rituals and religion every day without prayer. And I don't mean other people. I mean our kind of people. I mean Baptist people. I mean Southern Baptist people. The latest statistics show this. 10,449 churches last year baptized zero people. Zero people. 300, uh, 3,312 churches baptized one person. 13,760 churches in our denomination baptized less than five people. According to statistics, 27,521 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention baptized less than five people in the entire year, which amounts to 62% of all churches. And do not put yourself up on a high horse and say, God, thank you that we're not there. Because we could be there if we fail to pray. 75% of all SPC churches are in decline. They show zero conversion growth. What's wrong with the church, ladies and gentlemen? It's not the leadership. It's not a lack of buildings. It's not a lack of funding. It's not a lack of this. It's not a lack of that. I am convinced it's a lack of prayer. I'm convinced that people are not praying and seeking the Lord's face to do things that are beyond them because God will sit and He will watch congregation after congregation go forward in their own strength and twiddle their thumbs and accomplish nothing for the eternity. Nothing. But if we'll pray... He promises to hear our cry, to respond to that. And so he's teaching and he's showing, he's showing the danger to Michael Memorial of what could happen as we are in this place in the beginning of Luke chapter 9. That's where we seem to be right now. And it's a good place to be. But we need to heed this warning that it was just 40 verses later that the blessing and the power were gone. Because... They had forgotten the priority of prayer. And so the question is, not is God good? Not is He powerful? Not is He working among us? The question is, are we satisfied? Or will we go further? Will we push further? Will we begin to be people who want to see God do do a God thing among us? Are we praying that God will, will... will save our community? 
Are we, are we praying that God will, will use us to accomplish things around the world? Are we asking God to involve us personally, to involve us financially, to involve us with our families, to involve us with our time and our effort and our energy in all that He's got to do, that we're part of that? And you see, there's so many of you that are so involved and you're so, you're, you're, you're so being used by God and it's such a blessing and it's such an encouragement. But I feel compelled to share my heart with you this morning. There's more. There's more. Because if we united together in one accord and we began to seek the face of God, He would do things that are exceedingly and abundantly above that which we could ever ask or think. Because that is the God that we serve. You see, I think prayer represents our greatest opportunity as believers. But it's also our most neglected responsibility. And we are going to spend the month of October talking about what a church would look like if it believed God in His Word. If, if we together believe God to do what He promised to do and to take us where He promised to take us, to allow us the opportunity to be a part of what He's doing, what would that look like? But here's the thing. There's no point in, in, in having that conversation unless it's not completely set upon a foundation of prayer. Because we can hope and hope and hope. But if we're not praying, the truth is, is that we've become self-sufficient. And that's a very dangerous place to be. And so this morning, I just wanted us to take those few thoughts and let them settle into our hearts and consider. God, look at all you've done. Look at all you've done. Look at how faithful you've been to us. Look at what you have done that we as as people, humanly speaking, could have never accomplished on our own. But maybe this morning we say, God, but what do you have for us tomorrow? Lord, will you, will you help us to bring the gospel to the homeless of our community? Will you help us, Lord, to begin to, to, to evangelize all the people that we work with, that we go to school with? Will you help us to wake up in the morning and our very first thoughts are, what it is we can't wait to bring before you to pray and spend time with you. That over and over in the book of Luke, we find the disciples waking up and looking for Jesus. And where is He? In prayer to His heavenly Father. Folks, if we, fors- if we, if we forsake to do anything, may it not be to pray. Don't take for granted the blessing of God's presence today, but hunger and thirst forevermore for Him to evermore show Himself and involve us in the glory of being His children. That our hearts may stay humble before Him. And that every day as we pray, we're reminded, God, I can't do it without You. I can't. Because if I could, I wouldn't pray. So thank You. Thank You to those of you who spend so much of your time praying 
for this place. I know there's, there's six people here this morning that are eternally grateful in their families that you've been praying. And we're so happy. But God, what else do you have for us? We want to we we stay in the center of your will. We don't want to lose sight of how we got here. We're going to depend on you. You know, if you're here this morning and, and all of this has just been new to you if, you, if you listen to everything I've said and you think to yourself, well, I, I just, I don't understand that. You know, what, what does he mean? The power of God unto salvation, born again unto a living hope. What I mean is that Paul says in the book of Ephesians that the power that raised Jesus from the dead has been given to the church. That's what I mean. And so right now, if you don't know Jesus Christ and your heart's beating fast and you're beginning to, to, to fear this moment where I'm going to have everyone stand and bow their head and begin to pray for you, what I want you to realize is that I'm not making your heart beat. No one in this room is making your heart beat. That God's calling you. He's calling you. And He's saying, come unto me. And my power will be applied to your life. And your sin will be forgiven. And you will be born again to a living hope. So will we today as a congregation pray and tomorrow and the next day and on and on it goes and become people that are about His business dependent upon Him. Dependent upon Him. Don't we really just want to be the church that He called us to be? What an exciting journey this is. When you read the Bible, it's your story, church. It's your story. Look at the families in this room that have been revolutionized by the gospel. You are the richest people on the earth. Bill Gates cannot compare to your wealth. You go out tomorrow and begin to spread all that you have. Unlimited resources. Every time you reach in your pocket and pull out some gospel and hand it to someone who's lost, it's replenished again. It's an unlimited supply of good news to heal those who are struggling and hurting under the pressure and the death that comes of sin. That's who we are. That's who we are. Resurrection powers given to the church. Maybe this morning you walked in dead, but you'll leave alive. Let's stand and bow our heads and close our eyes. And Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. And we thank You, Father, for the warning we see in Luke 9, not to forsake the preeminence and the priority of prayer, God. We thank You that You love us in such a way that You will you'll warn us, Lord. You'll, you'll come and, and, and graciously be there with us, whispering in our ear to, to remind us not to lose sight of who we are and how we got here. Father, we want to be a part of what You're doing. Lord God, the greatest story that's ever been told is the story of redemption. And Lord, this morning we've been able to see that story played out six times before our eyes. And we thank you for that.
And God, will you continue to keep a desire in our heart to be a part of something that you are building, that we're not the architects of, but you are, Lord. You send who you see fit to us and we'll receive them and love them in the gospel. Lord God, you mold us and shape us. Please, Lord, don't let us fall into the trap of being a a place that once existed in your power, but now is simply dying. Lord, we love you and we're so grateful in Jesus' name.